Welcome to the Open Source Way. This is our podcast series, SAP's podcast series about the difference that open source can be. And in each episode, we'll talk with experts about open source and why they do it the open source way. I'm your host, Carsten Hohage, and in this episode, I'm going to talk to Georg Grüter from Bosch and Michael Picht from SAP's own OSPO about approaches to and myths about inner source. Hi, Georg. Hi, Michael. Hi, Carsten. Hi, Carsten. Thanks for having me. And uh, we just agreed before that I'm not going to call you George Michael because otherwise we'll all be humming <laughs> last Christmas in our head all the time, right? <laughs> okay, so Georg and Michael, today, before we start, let's have a quick commercial break. Sorry about that. Um, do you know the YouTube channel, channel SAP Devs? So at SAP Devs, my friend Josh and his colleagues there talk about a lot of developer relevant and interesting stuff. And they also invite you all to the SAP Code Jams, real in-person coding events. So check this out. We'll have the links under the podcast. Why am I mentioning that? What does it have to do with open source or inner source? Uh, they do, for example, also have CAP sessions, uh, UI5 sessions, all topics that we talked in the context of open source about in this podcast. But let's now come to our guests, Georg who we have here from Bosch, so as an external to SAP guest today, which is great, is a software developer and inner source advocate at Bosch, at Robert Bosch, to be complete, where he has co-founded the Inner Source Initiative in 2009. Georg is also driving inner source adoption outside of Bosch and co-founded the Inner Source Commons Foundation in 2020. Michael is working in SAP's open source program office, where he is one of the leads of SAP's inner source program. He is with SAP since more than 26 years, and you have already heard him in this podcast, I don't know, I think one or two years ago. Now, Georg, you're a guest from outside SAP from Bosch. The nice thing is uh, that despite that fact, we've had beers together. You remember that, right? We did. Right, we met last November at the Mercedes-Benz FOSS convention. Um, totally recommend that, by the way. <clears throat> it's a great um, a little setting to bring together practitioners in the industry, like us here, for instance. Michael, you have also met Georg in real life before, for all I know. Yeah, this is correct. I think we met some years ago, when was it 2018, 2019? I think Bosch hosted one of the Inner Source Cummins summits. Uh, near to Stuttgart and we were there and we met Georg and uh, till then we yeah, are in contact and from time to time we meet to exchange about inner source topics. Sometimes we meet in inner source commons working groups and um, yeah, sometimes we even do podcasts together. <laughs> <laughs> As it now happens, and uh, it's worth mentioning, by the way, because uh, this podcast has once started in times when nobody met in person, you remember, and uh, we're still in the remote recording mode, so don't picture us sitting all in the same studio, uh, but uh, we're all sitting here with video pictures of each other, and uh, that's why, of course, it's nice if one has seen each other before. Uh, let's come to the topic. Georg, uh, inner source. Do you want to remind everyone, give a quick uh, summary again, uh, what we mean by that? Sure. Um, so inner source sounds similar to open source for a good reason, because it's about using the 
best practices and the collaboration culture from the open source world inside an organization, hence the inner and inner source. And that's not done for developing open source software inside a corporation, but rather for developing internal non-open source software, primarily at least. Um, and typical examples that I've seen at Bosch are something like you know tools for developers, automations that we benefit from, internal services even, or POCs for new um, innovative products. And to me and to many of my fellow developers here at Bosch, uh, InnoSource is quite simply the best and the preferred way to collaboratively develop software together. Okay, many of your fellow developers, you said. Um, let's talk about InnoSource at Bosch specifically uh, a little more. Most people in the first place know Bosch for electric drills and other tools. If they look beyond the supermarket, maybe also for automotive parts. So what's your business with software in the first place and, and what's your business in inner source? I get that sentiment often. Um, well, in fact, software plays uh, a key role in our product since the late 70s. Uh, that's when we launched a new line of engine uh, control systems with uh, real software in them. Um, and its importance has grown ever since. And today we have about something like 40,000 software developers all over the world um, in, I think, 120 locations. Um, and software has really become a key differentiator for our products. Um, a little example, um, a couple of years back, I had a defect in my car, which caused the active steering system uh, to go into safe mode. And at that point, it really felt like a totally different car to me, less secure, far less comfortable. And, and that really you know, illustrated how important software uh, is for our products these days. And the mobility sector is the biggest one, but it's really only one of many areas where software is key. It's also true for consumer goods, as you mentioned, you know, think smart home, HVAC systems, power tools, um, but also for industrial applications. But uh, back to the inner source topic, Bosch, as I mentioned, is rather big uh, and very, very distributed across many locations and time zones. And on top of that, um, the software development that we do today often does not happen co-located anymore, not just in times of pandemic, but you know also before that already. And InnoSource basically helps us to efficiently collaborate with each other asynchronously as we do in the open source world. And on top of that, it has a couple of other noteworthy benefits for us, such as you know providing a space for networking, learning from each other, and this is my favorite, uh, for permissionless innovation. This is one of the uh, most important areas of InnoSource at Bosch, I think. Permissionless innovation, can you define that really quickly? Sure. It's basically just starting on, a, on an innovative topic that there is no silo for in, in a nutshell, basically. You know, there's no product area that already uh, would do that. And you can basically start new things um, with very little friction. And some really interesting things came out of it, which even won awards outside of Bosch. All right. And I also, uh, by the way, cannot help but notice uh, that I'm asking you what's Bosch's business in software. And then you're saying <laughs> 40,000 developers, which probably matches the number of SAP developers almost. Um, and I, I don't know the current numbers who's in development roles at SAP these days. Uh, uh, sorry for even asking. Um, now, <laughs> of course. Uh, uh, inner source. The inner source approach, uh, is it at Bosch? Despite that you're saying it's your favorite approach and many of your co-developers' favorite approach, is it at Bosch facing the same issues as everywhere? Or is Bosch like the one glorious example where the entire organization has subscribed to it and nobody has any doubts whatsoever? 
No, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think in hindsight, we made a few really good decisions when we started InnerSource in 2009. And those were instrumental in both getting it off the ground and sustaining it in, in the long run, so to speak. Um, but being one of the very early InnerSource adopters in the industry, we also made mistakes and encountered roadblocks along the way. Um, and I think uh, talking to other traditional and air quotes companies as well is that inner source can be really challenging for any big traditional company without a strong software background because it turns some of the traditional practices and values upside down such as the need to know principle or strictly hierarchical decision making for instance and uh, well aside from organizational problems that we had and still have to solve even at you know 13 years in uh, we are also faced with some myths about inner source, which are rather persistent and can constitute a barrier for widespread uh, inner source adoption. Maybe uh, I, I have probably one or two more uh, return questions to what you just said about the need to know principle and things like that. But let's maybe just kind of in a in a listed way look at some of the myths about uh, inner source um, and maybe try and unmystify one or the other. Uh, Michael, let's start with you now because you have been the silent guest so far. <laughs> you can ask my colleagues how I personally always struggle with GitHub. But if you do inner source, you must do GitHub, right, Michael? No, this is not correct. Inner source is not depending on any tooling. And uh, if you say GitHub, I, I guess we use it as a synonym for, for a whole category of tools, this Git-based tooling. GitHub is only one of these tools. There are others out there, GitLab or Bitbucket. And uh, none of these tools is really necessary for inner source. So what these tools offer is a nice support of the contribution workflow. So inner source, like, like open source, lives from contributions. So people contribute something which is in fact a change proposal. And then somebody, a uh, person typically who has a maintainer role or reviewer role, reviews this contribution, this change proposal, and accepts or rejects it. And um, if this change proposal is accepted, it's merged into the code base. And GitHub and these tools support these kind of workflow nicely. But you can also do it completely without GitHub and the other tools. For instance, we have a development unit at SAP who introduced the source some time ago for their projects. They have mainly ABAP projects, so ABAP this SAP proprietary development language, and they do not use GitHub at all. And, and they designed the contribution process completely without GitHub. And as tool support, they used Jira, and this is working perfectly. We even wrote a case study about it internally to roll it out, this knowledge. And um, yeah, so GitHub is not required for inner source. And the other way around, uh, if you put your code in GitHub, is it then already open, uh, no, inner source? This is another myth. This is also not the case. Many people think this, but uh, you need to be open for contributions. Just putting out code there is not sufficient. You need to have some documentation in place to make it easy for people to contribute uh, to, to your project. And, and this comes on top to just putting code out there on GitHub. Okay, then that was myth 1A and 1B. Uh, let's come to myth number two with Georg. Inner source means that everyone can do what they want, not only with their code, but also with mine. It's complete software development anarchy. 
<laughs> That's indeed something we heard at the very beginning of our inner source journey. And actually, to this day, there are managers and developers, uh, both, who are reluctant to adopt inner source because they assume that there is a loss of control regarding what ends up in their software and who will maintain it in the end. Um, but anyone who's familiar with Git-based workflows like the one that Michael just um, mentioned and modern code collaboration platforms will know that there are suitable mechanisms for allowing contributions for everyone, but at the same time controlling what goes into the main development line, into the code base. And I'm talking about branch protection and pull requests, of course. Um, I assume that these fears of anarchy um, are primarily a result of little or no experience or even exposure to the open source working model, um, both on, on part of our managers and some of our developers. Um, there's one other aspect of uh, to anarchy that I'd like to bring up, uh, namely that developers, given complete freedom, which they had in our case, uh, will work on their pet projects and stuff that's not necessarily beneficial for the company, right? Uh, in fact, one of the values of our inner source initiative was voluntariness. So we didn't want to force anyone to contribute to inner source. Uh, only, you know, intrinsically motivated people should do that. Um, so you can imagine that this raised a lot of eyebrows and reinforced these fears, actually. However, our experience uh, at Bosch is the exact opposite. Um, because if you think about it, it's quite natural. The, the biggest reward and recognition for any inner source developer is if their software um, you know, makes their job and that of their fellow developers easier or more productive or even better if their software ends up in a Bosch product that makes Bosch successful. So what actually happened was we didn't have anarchy. Uh, we actually observed many people working towards making Bosch better and contributed to Bosch as a whole. And that is sort of the implicit social contract we have in place uh, in our inner source initiative. So no anarchy at all. All right. And that was, that was again, almost, again, splitting it up in myth uh, 2A and B. Uh, that was one, the anarchy, and one, the pet project fear, uh, basically. And also, uh, I couldn't happen but notice, fears of anarchy would be a great name for some 80s electropunk band or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, let's continue with... Uh, inner source and the myth. Uh, Michael, won't everyone just simply dump their low-quality code into my repository if we do things inner source? Yeah, this is um, a fear that we hear often. But we just touched on it already. We have this contribution workflow, so people do not just put code into a productive code base or something. They make change proposals. It's called pull request in these tools like GitHub. And um, then there are people who have to review um, uh, these, these change proposals. Typically, the role is named maintainer or committer or reviewer. And um, these persons are the gatekeepers. So they have to make sure that the quality is met, that the pull request fits to the scope of the entire project and this kind of stuff. So they really can make sure that the quality is, is really kept. And what I also would recommend um, uh, to inner source project is to define in their contribution guidelines what they really expect uh, quality-wise from contribution. So define your definitions of done in your contribution guidelines, make clear to the contributors what you really expect in terms of documentation, in terms of tests, so that they know what you expect. And then you can also keep uh, the quality of your project high. But number four, Georg, in the end, nobody's really responsible, right? Or everyone is. And that's really the same as nobody or what? 
Uh, that can happen for sure, uh, but I don't think it's inevitable. <clears throat> and I think it largely depends on the nature of the inner source project uh, and the inner source setup. So at, at Bosch, as I mentioned before, we had a strong focus on grassroots and this permissionless innovation thing <clears throat> in the beginning. And a lot of really interesting product innovations came out of that. But there were code bases which were not used widely or not at all, actually, and which did not make it into products or tools or anything that was useful. Uh, and those eventually died, not the least because the maintainers had other things to do, obviously. Um, but uh, if the inner source software happens to be a tool, for instance, um, at Bosch, for instance, we have customizations of tools like uh, the our open source scanners, for instance, and those are widely used, then the benefiting business units usually have a vested interest in maintaining the software. And we have seen that happening in many cases, actually. Um, we have also had cases where we completely transferred the responsibility for a piece of software that started in the inner source to a business unit uh, with a contract, basically, which spelled out you know, what each party's uh, rights and obligations are with respect to the software. Uh, but basically, uh, then the software transitioned from community maintainership to business unit maintainership. Um, but that's maybe a little bit more specific, uh, especially this innovation thing here. Uh, what's way more prevalent in the industry, from what I hear in the inner source commons, uh, are inner source projects which are maintained by a central team. And I think software platforms or you know tool libraries are a common example for that. Uh, and in this case, the responsibility, not just for development, but also for support, is more clearly defined. Uh, Whatever the, the setup, in, I would in any case recommend that maintainers or those who are responsible for a code base invest a significant effort in getting additional maintainers, uh, we call them trusted committers sometimes, uh, get them on board uh, to basically reduce the bus factor and make sure that there is someone who takes care of uh, any piece of inner source software. I was just wondering when you were describing that, has that been visualized in somebody's presentations or articles yet? Like these different patterns, how you can have responsibilities of people differ in uh, inner source projects? I was just having pictures in my mind, that's why I'm asking. I think, uh, yes, actually, there was in inner source commons, um, this uh, internet, this, you know, open source community, which is driving inner source adoption. Uh, they're also capturing patterns, as you mentioned, and one of them is the trusted committer, if I remember correctly, which explains exactly what the responsibilities of this particular role are. Uh, and related to this particular myth, there is one that I find very interesting. It's called a uh, 30-day warranty. It uh, basically addresses the fear that if someone makes a contribution and, you know, project decides to integrate that, um, that should they have questions after integrating it, that developer, the contributor, would no longer be available. And this pattern basically describes a contract where this uh, any contributor is available for feedback, bug fixes, whatever, within 30 days after contribution. So there are patterns, yes, really good ones. I would totally recommend to have a look at the patterns repository. Okay, so inner source commons would be the place to go, right? Yes, innersourcecommons.org. Okay, cool. We'll have that under the podcast, of course. However, myth number, I think if I counted correctly, five now, Michael, who would want to even contribute to inner source projects anyway? Do I just simply declare inner source and get my developers for free all of a sudden or... I mean, that doesn't work. Uh, no, this will, of course, not work. I mean, this would be similar as just putting out your code on GitHub and then hoping that you get contributions, but this will not work. 
because people will not know your, about your project. And if they know your project, you might not know that this is an inner source project. Uh, so you have to actively promote your project and that you are really ready and, and that contributions are wanted. And um, yeah, typically in a company, you have different uh, channels to do this. There are often communities inside the company that you can use, also maybe technology-specific communities. Um, and uh, what is also really important to involve your stakeholders as early as possible, uh, Georg mentioned already uh, these reuse libraries. So if you have reuse components, so code that is used by other projects, these consumers of the code are natural contributors. And it, of course, makes sense to align with them as early as possible. And we also had the case at SAP that the pull for turning a project into an inner source project came from these consumers because they, they wanted a feature, they wanted to have a feature, but this feature was not available. And uh, the central project team did not have time to implement it. And then they said, hey, what about us uh, implementing it? Would it be okay for you? And this led then to turning this project into an inner source project. Um, and what is also important that you have to create a win-win situation. So you have to give the potential contributors some reason to contribute to so some benefits that they can take from contributing. And um, if we talk about reuse components, it's of course the fact that if you as a consumer contribute, you get your features much earlier than if you wait for the central project team to implement this for you. So um, yeah, just putting out the code and putting an inner source sign on it um, does not work, of course. You have to actively promote it. Okay, that's pretty obvious, actually, but still, of course, the misconceptions about uh, get your developers for nothing and your code for free uh, is out there. Let's, uh, and, and this, this is far from the complete list of things people falsely think about inner source approaches or myths that are out there, but let's come to the last one, Georg. Uh, as people will obviously just dump their, okay, maybe not their worst, but mediocre code into my repo and then leave, there is, of course, in the end, no support for inner source created services or apps, right? Uh, no. <laughs> well, well <clears throat> our at least our practical experience at Bosch is different. Um, we do have a few successful, purely inner source-based services. Um, and actually, one of the very first success stories was uh, an app, an iOS app, uh, when it was still cool to have one, uh, that was developed uh, solely by an inner source uh, community up until market launch. We actually went to the trade fair and presented that app, and we happened to won an international design award for it even. Um, so, and in fact, our inner source projects have gained a stellar reputation regarding software quality over time. There were some doubts in the beginning, but we, I think we kind of dissolved them. Uh, and actually some business units have adopted um, some of the development approaches that we have, were first used in our inner source ecosystem. And as Michael mentioned before, successful inner source projects do establish mechanisms to ensure that contributions meet quality requirements before they are accepted. But uh, coming back, since you mentioned it about mediocre code. So as a maintainer, when you receive a code contribution, which you would consider, you know, not good enough or mediocre, this might at first be annoying, right? I'm sure most uh, maintainers will know that. Um, but I think it's it's a very human reaction, really. Um, however, these contributions, uh, you should look at them in a different way, I think, uh, because they are really an important opportunity for any inner source project. 
uh, in my personal experience, it's usually not about sloppiness, which is the first assumption that comes to mind when you see such a contribution, but rather the lack of experience on part of the contributor. So as a maintainer or trusted committer in my projects, I've always made it a priority to help these contributors to get their contribution over the finish line, regardless of what it looks like, provided that it's valuable in terms of you know features or whatever it is they contributed. And I've used pull requests, and this is, I think, why they are so great and versatile. I've used pull requests to share knowledge uh, about software development in general and basically upskill our developers. And this give and take is, in my personal experience, one of the best ways to build up lasting working relationships and also nurture new trusted committers because it's, you know, it's a give and take and usually both sides even learn in the process. So even if a contribution is mediocre, uh, don't look at it, you know, annoyed or anything. Look at it as an opportunity for any source. So, so you're basically saying an analogy to uh, there are no stupid questions, uh, there are no mediocre contributions? Uh, sort of. I mean, I think there are contributions which I would not want to accept because they maybe just don't fit or, you know, whatever. But yeah, and I think there are very rare contributions which cannot be merged. Because usually when someone makes a contribution, they do it for a good reason because they need some feature or had some bug which annoyed them or whatever. So it's, I would hesitate to label some contribution as not valuable um, at all. I see the point. Let's uh, maybe leave it at that with the myths for today. As far as I know, there is no official list about the myths about inner source. So you might have to just use your favorite search engine to find out about more myths about inner source. Uh, or is there, do you know? SAP internally, we have a list. So we use it to roll it out and to, to, to increase knowledge about inner source. But maybe Georgsys would be something for inner source comments to uh, create such a list. Okay. Yeah, totally. Then we might see about that in the future. Uh, where else should people go for info about inner source at SAP or learn about uh, Bosch's approach to it? Uh, well, for Bosch, we, uh, well, I mean, the number one source is probably the innersourcecommons.org, as I mentioned before. Um, there are a couple of companies who have already um, basically reported on what they did for, uh, how they started their inner source uh, initiative and why they did that and so on. There's, and we are among them, there's one book called Adopting Inner Source. It's a free uh, book from O'Reilly and you can download it uh, on our website. And there's one chapter called Living in the Biosphere. Um, this is uh, basically the Bosch story. BIOS, by the way, is Bosch internal open source. That's what we call it. Uh, we didn't know when we started it that it was called inner source. Uh, we only learned that like six years in <laughs> and we stuck with the name. So that's why it's called Biosphere. Um, and on top of that, there are a couple of talks that I gave on the topic. Um, and I think they will be shared in the show notes. Michael, for inner source at SAP. Inner source at SAP. Um, yeah, you mentioned already at the very beginning um, that there is another podcast that we did together about inner source at SAP uh, one and a half years ago or so. Um, then I wrote a blog post about inner source at SAP. Uh, I think this will also be linked. Um, and we gave already various presentations um, at inner source comments, summits, or forum meetings. 
We'll make sure that all the links that we mentioned and if necessary, some more are found with the podcast where it's being posted. Now, I failed to announce that this uh, where do you go to find out more is usually my before last question. That's why we all of a sudden come to my traditional last question. And that is, uh, what would be the three things uh, you'd want listeners to take away from this podcast episode, the so-called three key takeaways? You can either, I don't know, Georg 2, Michael 1, or alternate. Georg, you go first, I suggest. Okay. Uh, I would say the most important thing to know is that inner source is a very humane and a very productive working model for collaborative software development. Okay, Michael? Okay, I have one for the people who think that inner source is nothing for them. Maybe you have some misconceptions, so maybe look at inner source and maybe it would fit to your project. And Georg, do you have another one? Yeah, building on that, I would just say ignore the myths uh, and uh, just assume that you will not know what it is until you've done it. <laughs> okay. Michael, anything to add? Uh, yeah, maybe another one to people who are in charge to establish inner source in their organization. Maybe it makes sense to actively list these myths and misconceptions about inner source, clarify it and roll it out inside your organization, also to increase the right knowledge about inner source. Okay, that ties in nicely with Georg before. Ignore the myths or at least explain the myths. Um, that's great. And let's maybe leave it at that. Um, thank you very much, Georg. And thank you very much, Michael, for being our guest today. My pleasure. It was fun. Thank you, Carsten and Georg. All right. And Michael will probably see you again in one and a half years. Uh, Georg, who knows? <laughs> Thanks all out there for listening to The Open Source Way. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and don't miss the next one. We usually publish every last Wednesday of the month. You'll find us on OpenSAP and in most of those places where you find your other podcasts like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. Thanks again and bye-bye. <laughs>